What is up, Brick Stackers? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Stacking the Bricks. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and this is another edition of the Tiny MBA Podcast Tour. Over the last few weeks, I've been visiting podcasts all across the internet, talking with entrepreneurs and creative people just like you. And another thing that these podcast hosts have in common is that they've recently read my new book, The Tiny MBA. And in each of these conversations, we get a chance to go deeper into their favorite lessons from the book to help you get an even better understanding of how those lessons might be valuable to you. I want to talk about order really quickly. Uh, the first page says most people pay way too much attention to things that do not matter to their customers. Things like press, awards, drama, and hype. Try auditing who and what you're paying attention to, then cut two big things that you let distract in the past. Why was that the first thing that came to your head? I don't know, because I don't remember exactly what was going on in my head. But what I will say is, I think it's one of the most prescriptive things in the book. This is probably one of my favorite questions I've been asked about the Tiny MBA. So if you haven't already checked out that episode, make sure you tune in to hear the full answer when you're done listening to this episode. You can find that the same place where you found this episode. In this episode, I talked with Matthew Arnold on the Iowa Idea Podcast, where he explores modern collaboration, craft, and persistence. Inside, we're going to talk about why businesses, especially agencies, get distracted by awards and how you can do differently, what it means to flintstone your work, and what people get wrong about passion. You may have seen that as a theme come up in previous episodes. We're going to continue to explore that here and a whole lot more. So with that, I hope you enjoy this in-depth conversation I had with Matt. Here we go. Yeah, because a, a few things that I really appreciate about it. One is it feels like what we might call in design or principles, right? So it's thing, things that are almost underneath the surface guiding where we're going. And especially as the world becomes more complex, I think you know, it's the kind of the, the weird duality with complexity is complex adaptive systems don't yield to previous best practices, but they can be guided by some general principles, right? So if you think of like a, a flock of birds or a swarm of bees, stay close to your neighbor, not too close. When one turns, you turn, and, and how, how you, can, you can maneuver changing, changing situations. And that's one of the things where I see businesses and even classic NBA kind of case study elements getting in trouble is because then somebody thinks that is the answer when it, it leaves out a lot of context and context matters. And so I love that, that principles approach. And then one of the other things I really like is in, in kind of the agile lean world, there's so much emphasis on speed. And I think, I think we need to be fast and accurate. And I think it's hard to be accurate when we don't reflect. So I really, I really like your, your intentionality about that reflection and just, just that check-in to see if that applies or not. Yeah, I, I love that you pick up on the speed component because it's not something I say explicitly in the book, but, but it's shown up a bunch of times in these conversations. The notion that, I mean, I think in modern business, speed has become the default good. Right. If you were going fast, you were doing a good job. And that it's become, to me, it's true. become like, it, yeah, an excuse to deliver shitty products and services. I, I think in, in a lot of cases, that's really true. Yeah, we got and it so, out the door. <laughs> yeah. And so like on one hand, I want to challenge the notion that speed is the is the the North Star or the thing to calibrate for or even 
to beyond challenging the notion to say, well, what instead? If I'm not optimizing for speed, what can I optimize for? And another thing that is not said explicitly in the book, but I think is sort of the the foil or the complement to the implied challenge of speed is the implied suggestion of resiliency and building things that are designed to last, building things that it's not that they're permanent because permanent is its own set of challenges is doing things that can last so that if they need the last, they will, or so that you, if they need to be changed or replaced, you do it by choice, not because you rushed it out the door, did a shitty job and it broke, Right. but doing things more intentionally, slowing things down, even just to make sure that you gave the decision, the time and the breathing room to be considered rather than everything as a knee jerk reaction. I felt that a lot myself over the last several months when, you know, uh, while dealing with learning like how to deal with a virus and, and quarantine and all these things, like every, when everything is a reaction, the work is bad. Like work that stems from nothing but reactions is typically going to be garbage work because there's no coherence. There is no, in, no intentionality. And frankly, there's no audience for it. The audience for reactive work is whatever you're reacting to. And if that's constantly changing, then you're going to end up with this weird uh, uh, mutant of a result, right? Versus feeling the outside experience and going, whether it's good or bad, acknowledge it give it a second and then say, how does this fit into my strategy? How does this suggest I need to change the strategy, but sort of separate the processing from the doing and treat them as two deliberate steps. That alone, I'm not talking about slowing down for days or weeks. I'm like, give yourself 10 minutes before you hit send on that email and you know there the you'd be amazed at what changes when you pause and stop and think about even seemingly minute details when you like for me i'm always using that time to consider the other person so if i use the email as an example it doesn't even need, need to be a bad thing an email comes in the inbox what do i do i respond to that email because that's what email clients have trained us to do but if i don't take the time to think about who i'm responding to why are they sending me this email? What do I want to get out of responding, right? Because I can respond to just like tennis whap back over to yep, their side of the yep. court and then we're just going to go back and forth. Or I can say, what do they need so that I don't get another response to this email until it's the right time? Yep. And that's a thing that for people who feel overwhelmed with email, I'm always like, well, maybe take some responsibility for the fact that you're not like, yes, you've got tons of inbound email, but some of that inbound email it's probably your fault. <laughs> so what can you do to change the way you handle email to reduce the amount of inbound and it's make it less about kicking the can down the road and more about giving the other person what they really need to be self-sufficient for long enough to do the thing and maybe even see it all the way through. Awesome. Are you, you're all right. If I dig it, there's a few of the specific elements that I, I, I want to just, yeah. yeah, kind of your, your insight or how you got there, but you kind of lead off with, Basically, businesses, the amount of time that they focus and the energy they expend on things that aren't valuable to customers. Could you, could you expand on that one a little bit? <laughs> I mean, I can point to a million yeah. examples. I'll put my bias on my sleeve. I learned this real hard. I cut my teeth in the digital agency world. 
and the digital agency world loves their award shows. I'm sure that stems from a, a, a pastime, and also the fact that you know when you're in advertising, you're creating ads for a client. A good ad happens, the client gets all the recognition. What do you get, right? And so when it comes to how do you motivate your employees, how do you how do you create a feedback loop inside the industry? I get why awards exist. But I also get the potential damage that can happen is once you create awards and award categories, now you're encouraging people to optimize for winning the awards instead of creating great work. And the client becomes the award instead of the person paying you and the effectiveness of that ad. So I saw that early on in my career and I've seen it in the co-working world. People are optimizing for press and PR instead of, again, deep relationships between members. They're optimizing for butts and seats instead of people connecting with each other. And they're optimizing for these really short-term, visible, often highly visible wins that create a hungry beast to be fed. And you need more of that thing. And the more that thing needs to be fed, the more you're pulling energy away from the thing that really matters. And so even if you know what the thing that matters is, it is so easy to get distracted. And I just see a lot of that happen in in all industries and categories I've worked in. People just get their priorities screwed up somewhere. They get glamored with you know, fame and um, notoriety and all those things. And I mean, even when you're hearing somebody like me on a podcast, like that implies that I have some level of success. Question that, (laughs) like is a good thing to do and then decide, even if it is true, is that what you need to achieve the next goalpost for you and the people who you serve? And if you're going and doing a podcast tour in no way serves your audience or your customers and it's just serving your ego and your desire to hear your own voice and i'm saying this as someone who really enjoys podcasting and doesn't mind hearing his own voice so i can call myself out on this but i get on these shows with the goal of trying to tell a story or give an example that somebody can actually take home and use or reflect on because I have a sense of who's listening and because I have a sense of what problems they might have and how I might be able to help. For me, the podcast appearance is not just to add another name to my list. It's because I know Matt's got an audience of cool, interesting, interesting, creative people. And if I can help one of them, then us sitting here having this conversation is a hundred percent worth it to me. But yeah, early in my career on kind of uh brand and marketing communication side of things, it really burned me that, yeah, the amount of energy that was spent on here are the awards that we won rather than talking about the, the business value they created for their customers. Like here, here's how we moved the needle for this customer. So I, I love that one. Want to dig in on the, the notion of Flintstoning. Can you explain that for the audience? So, well, I'll back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the folks that Amy and I have taught through Stacking the Bricks, the main audience for Stacking the Bricks are people with creative skills. So a lot of designers and developers, people who can build software and tools, right? A lot of people out there don't have those abilities. And so Flintstoning is not always the first, the most useful lens for them, but I think it's valuable nonetheless. If your instinct when you need to solve a problem is to build a tool to either automate or solve that problem for you instead of cobble together off the shelf stuff to make sure that the problem even needs solving people will pay to have the problem solved that your thesis on how the problem can be solved is right 
We call that Flintstoning. Like the cars the Flintstones drove, there was no motor. It was just feet out the bottom, pedal till you go, right? And yeah, it doesn't scale. That's okay. I get real human contact with the problem and the the problem area and all those kinds of things. So in the context of the tiny MBA, the reminder here is is to avoid over-engineering and over-complicating your solutions, whether you're a technical person or not. I think it's really easy to imagine, especially if you're a designer, to imagine a really well-designed system, a set of interlocking parts, pieces, whatever it is, and realize that even the best research plan survives contact with reality for very long. So what is the Flintstone version of that? How can you kind of hold it together with shoestring and bubble gum just long enough to make sure that it actually works? And as soon as you know it works or specifically how it doesn't work, that will inform the more permanent maybe more engineered as well as even just the the ability and re- how reasonable it is to to invest in creating something that is more permanent things like that yeah i love i love it because i see where i see lots of organizations get in trouble too is the lack of kind of iterating through that kind of desirability and feasibility phase they just jump right to here's what we're going to do and can spend a lot of money on something that flops because they didn't understand the problem or they didn't have that human connection. One, one more that I want to dig into because you know, you, you're a passionate person talked about lots, lots of, lots of energy. Uh, but one of the things you talk about is passion as output rather than input. Can you, can you talk about kind of that lesson and how you came to that? So again, this is sort of through the lens of stacking the bricks. See a lot of creative people show up and they narrow their choices based on what they're passionate about. And part of the reason for that is because there's this intertwined confusion about passion and motivation, right? I think it's good to optimize for things that motivate you, but I think when you intertwine them, you get confused about where motivation comes from. And the way I look at it is for a lot of things, especially things that you are not instantly good at, you need motivation to put in the work and get the reps to learn and practice so you can get good at it. But passion itself actually comes from the process of getting good at something. So starting out bad at something doesn't mean that you're not passionate about it. It means you don't have a feedback loop to show you a sense of progress. And so what we try to encourage folks to do is say, rather than looking for things that you're passionate in, or rather rather than limiting yourself to things that you're passionate in, find things that are potentially valuable and that will give you an opportunity to learn and grow. Because from within the learning and the growth, you can find that passion. And more, maybe the better way to look at it is like you can cultivate that passion. Like passion is not this inert thing that's either in you or out there. It's the result of doing a thing and doing it with some again, some repetition and some consistency and the feedback loop of growth. If there's no feedback loop of growth, it is very hard to be passionate about something. So that's why people feel like I'm not passionate about that. What they're really saying is, is I didn't do it long enough to feel like I was good at it. Kathy Sierra talks a lot about this in a lot of her design work is uh, there's a, there's a curve and there's a, I think she calls it the trough of suckitude (laughs) and the trough of suckitude is how long you are willing to be bad at something before you give up. And, In my experience, the longer somebody has been good at most of the things that they do, right? Working professionals like you and me and the people listening, if you've been good at stuff for a long time, it's been probably been a while since you were truly bad at something. And I'm just, we're all guilty of this. This is not me pointing fingers. I think it's just part of the way our brains work. So we 
tend to go to things that are, appear new, but when I say new, they're new-ish. They are building on old, you know, our old skills and things like that. Like truly going back to zero is rare. That's a good thing, except for in the occasions where you really need to learn something new. Right. And it's been so long since you were new that you try something new and you're not instantly good at it and you go, oh shit, maybe I'm broken. And that's the thing that I see kills more people and more more pursuits is them trying something, not instantly being good at it or worse, just being downright bad at it. And then internalizing that is I am bad. And then they r- run away and never try again instead of what's i guess a more growth mindset which is i'm bad at this now but there are people that i can learn from who have gotten good at it let me go study right. how they went from being bad to being good and see how, see who what help i can get see what uh structures might exist see what milestones exist between i've never done this before and i can do this proficiently it's not a zero to one there's probably a thousand invisible milestones along the way so the best way to find the passion is, is to find those first few milestones and commit to them. And the sense of progress that comes from them will, will I think result in the passion that people need to stay motivated to do the work for the long haul. Yeah. It's funny. You say, you know, you're talking about suckitude. I was talking with Adam Hansen recently. So he's from ideas to go and co-authored outsmart your instincts and it's a behavioral approach to innovation and one of his personal beliefs is that you have to believe in something enough that you're willing to suck at it, right? Is that you? I, I and, totally and, agree. And it is, like you said, getting in the reps. And that's one, one of the things that we probably could have a whole other episode on is just practice, repetition, and so many things in business where you'll see somebody not put in many reps and then go do something and, and they're surprised that it failed where like music, theater, arts, right? The amount of time that goes on behind the scenes to get ready for something, right? I mean, football players, uh, the, the amount of hours they put in a week for one hour of game time, right? The yep. musicians, the amount of time they'll put in before a show. So I love the idea of reps. One of the things we, we talk a lot about in the podcast too is advice. So as we're getting close to the end, either what was some good advice that you've had that sticks with you or stealing from Austin Cleon, steal like an artist is that, when we're giving advice, we're talking to our, our younger self. What might be some advice that you wish you would have had early on? Early in my career, I was, I mean, let's be honest. I was a young white dude who made websites and thought he knew what he was doing. And so I, I certainly did and said some things that I'm sure made people think less of me. I'm sure burned bridges, you know, for all the bridges I built. I'm sure I burnt others along the way. I think the, the lesson here is like patience pays off and it takes it's it's worth putting the time in and I, and more specifically that's in relationships and realizing that the, if you come at it through a lens of is there a relationship to be built here that is different from do i like this person or not right it's really really tough to make a judgment from the outside the the only sort of consistent thing i've found is can be like a, a reason to keep somebody at arm's length is you know, they themselves have done or created harm to other people knowingly. So like, it's like people make mistakes, but when you find out, you know, it, you keep doing it. That's a problem. Those people keep at arm's length and also people who enable those people. So those are the two categories that I'm still really pretty consistent with, but everybody else, even if I am uncertain, I think I'm more 
comfortable going into a conversation uncertain now and knowing that uncertainty is a good place to be and it allows me to form sort of a, a more complete honest picture of that person i think i think giving relationships the time they really need and deserve is the thing that has paid off the most and it took me a while to really figure out what that looked like and meant early in my career because a lot of it was just like i gotta get the work done i gotta get the next project i gotta show off my new skills those kinds of things but it's really you know i can look at a few dozen relationships that i've now had for 15 years and even with the book coming out people who are buying the book now that i haven't talked to in over a decade but we can pick up the core connection that we right where we left off and i think there's more of that in our lives than we notice than we invest in and that we think to turn to in times where we need it and i think that's part of what life is all about is is to have those relationships with people before you need them and also tap them even when you don't need anything just be like hey how you doing right relationships are not transactions relationships come before transactions relationships are a platform that allow transactions to happen in a new and better way so for me, it's like invest 90% in the relationship with no expectation of a transaction so that if one day when there is an opportunity for a transaction to happen, I've got all the, the cards stacked in my favor. And there's already a foundation of trust, right? Exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me. With folks listening, where, where might they get a copy of Tiny MBA? I'm so glad you asked. So Tiny MBA <laughs> is available at tiny.mba. That's the whole website, tiny.mba. That'll take you to, or you can Google it, the Tiny MBA. Mm-hmm. And that'll allow you to order in paperback or a digital ebook. We are also on Amazon for a Kindle edition. So you can buy the Kindle edition on Amazon dot whatever, wherever you are in the <laughs> world. And uh, the book's come with some extra digital goodies as well, which are easier for us to deliver if you're buying directly from us. So the tiny.mba option is generally going to be your best one. Right on. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure having you here and felt like I could keep talking for for hours on on all these different topics. So thanks for coming aboard, sharing your wisdom and your journey. I, I appreciate it. If you enjoyed that episode, and I hope you did, I've got a couple quick things before you go. The first, of course, is making sure that you have your very own copy of the Tiny MBA. If you haven't ordered, I love it if you did. You can grab a paperback, ebook, or Kindle version. Find the links to all of that at tiny.mba. I also hope you're subscribed to this show. We're going to be releasing more episodes like this with other creators and entrepreneurs just like you. I'm going to be talking to them about their favorite lessons in the Tiny MBA, learning what's going on in their world, and sharing more with you. So you can search for Stacking the Bricks wherever you get podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed. One last thing, check out the Stacking the Bricks website. We've got a great newsletter with new articles coming out every week or two following a lot of the same topics and themes that we talk about right here on the show. You can do that by going to stackingthebricks.com. I hope you have a great rest of your day and don't forget to keep on stacking those bricks.